Today's scripture reading will come from the book of Galatians, chapter 5, verses 13 to 26. I will be reading from the NIV um, Bible, but you can follow along in your pew Bibles on page 1421. Hear now the word of the Lord. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour one if you bite and devour each other, watch out, or you will be destroyed by each other. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify these desire, the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immortality, impurity, and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, self-ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. This is the word of the Lord. Today we're wrapping up our series on the church. We've talked about First Free Methodist Church. First week we talked about First Meth uh, Church here locally. We talked about Free Methodist, the denomination we're a part of last week. And today we're going to talk about Methodism as a, really, it's actually a global movement, a worldwide movement. Another term that we use to describe this Methodist denomination or Methodist movement is also Wesleyan. We are people of uh, founding father is John Wesley. We'll learn a little bit about him today as well. So I'm going to do a little church history. We're going to learn a lot about something else that we call grace today. In fact, if you want to just check out right now and go to sleep right now or whatever online and go get coffee, just know this. We as Methodists and Wesleyans are people of grace. We are people of grace. I hope that sticks with you today and you'll, we're going to, because we're going to talk about grace. That's what we're going to do. So I was uh, also thinking about how uh, we travel. Anybody here trying to get to all 50 states, trying to check all 50 states off your travel list? Anybody doing that? I know I have been doing that. I'm in competition with some of my family members. I am winning right now with 46 states. Anybody else doing that? Nobody's doing that. Okay, I'm the only one doing that. All right. I feel so lonely all of a sudden. All right. Uh, anyway, so, so these are the four states I have left. Arkansas, Iowa, North Dakota, and Oklahoma. And I have no desire to go to any of those states right now, so I don't know how I'm going to get this done. But somebody just told me after his first service, because they like North Dakota, they said, you know, a lot of people save North Dakota for their 50th state. And if you go to North Dakota Visitor Center, they will give you a T-shirt that says, I saved the best for last. So anyway, I am going to leave that on the list uh, for me. 
But a lot of times we use this word state. Like, what state are we in? Like, what state, if you've ever traveled or driven across the country, like, what state are we in? The kids are always in the backseat going, what state are we in? What state are we in now? Oh, we're going into this state, right? Here's a question for us today as Methodists. It's a Methodist question. What's the state of your soul today? What state is your soul in? What's its condition? What does it feel like? What is it, where is it living right now? You see, the term Methodist comes from John and Charles Wesley. John and Charles, John was the preacher, Charles was the songwriter. And the two brothers, they began something called Holy Clubs at Christ Church in Oxford, England. And these Holy Clubs would meet every week, and they were very intense in accountability groups, and they would ask each other questions. And one of the key questions of that group was, uh, a question that came out of that group was, how goes it with your soul? How goes it with your soul? How's your soul today? What state is your soul in? That's the question. And actually, the term Methodist was started because people watching these clubs started to say, these people are very methodical in the way they follow Jesus. <laughs> and they have all these questions, and they have these routines, and they're very methodical. And, and so they got the term. They started calling them, oh, those Methodists. And that's the term that stuck all these uh, over a couple hundred years is that they're Methodists. So the term stuck. Uh, the church embraced that term Methodist, and so the Methodist church was uh, born in, in England out of the Anglican church, and then as the country, the United States, was, grew uh, from the pre-revolutionary war and throughout, at, throughout our history, the Methodist church grew with our country, and it grew as a global movement as well. So I want to back up a little bit and give us some understanding of what happened before the Methodist church. And that is something, I'm going to show you a very simplified tree of religion or a tree of denominations. And I want you to take a look at this tree and kind of just show you where the Methodists are. So this is the tree, and uh, you may have heard of other types of churches and different faiths and everything. And you can see at the bottom of that is Judaism. We, we come out, if you read the Old Testament, we come out of the nation of Israel. We're engrafted in Jesus, the, the church. And then, but I want you to look about two-thirds to three-quarters up the way, you'll see the word Methodist, and it's a branch off of the trunk, and it's a different branch off of what's called the Anglican branch, and there's the Reform branch. So I want you to just look there. Can you all raise your hand if you can see that, where the Anglican and Reform. Okay, just stay there. That's, that's the only part you got to worry about today. Don't worry about the rest of the tree. Uh, people were asking me questions I didn't know at the end of this, like, you know, what, who are the Hooterites and all that stuff. I'm like, i got to go back and read that. So anyway, stay there. See, what happened, I want you to know something. The Protestant Reformation happened under Martin Luther, and you can see uh, in, after the Protestant Reformation, the church split into what's called the Reformed belief and the Methodist, Anglican or Methodist belief, right? And so Methodists come out of that. So there was a, a split in the church over this idea between what we know as a uh, Calvinist, Reformed teaching, and then another type of teaching we get from Arminius, or, or called Arminian. And those are the terms that theologians use. So the reason, another thing about this, just a little tidbit here, the Methodists also, out of the Methodists sprung the Assembly of God Church, the Nazarene Church, uh, some of the Pentecostal churches, as well as the Wesleyan Church. So there's a multiple denominations that came out of the Methodist branch later. So... But go back to this little split in the, in the tree, the family tree here. 
between the Reformed and the Anglican, or what we would call the Arminian and the Reformed movements of the Protestant Reformation. So there was a Calvin, if you're familiar at all with Calvin or John Calvin, or you might hear the term Calvinist. Those are people that believe that people were elect, predestined to be saved, uh, saved by Jesus. And so God, Jesus' grace and atonement was limited to the people who were elected and predestined to be saved. Now, another person, his name was Jacobus Arminius, studied under John Calvin's son-in-law, and under that, he became a strict Calvinist. So Jacobus Arminius became a strict Calvinist and believed uh, Calvinism and, and took that as his gospel, so to speak. But then he began, later in life, began to study the Book of Romans, which interestingly enough is a book that John Wesley studied as well and had impact in his life. And as he began to study the Book of Romans, he began to interpret the Book of Romans and read the Book of Romans and go, you know, this doesn't line up with Calvinism. Calvinism or Calvinistic belief or reform thinking. And so Jacob Arminius came to the conclusion that, the, that what was going on here was that it was God's grace was not limited to just the elect. And the conclusion he came to was that God's grace is available to all people. That, that God's grace is available to all. And so this began his teaching and what we understand as the Arminian stream of theological stream of the church. So he began to understand that God's grace, Jesus died for the whole world on the cross. God's grace and love is available to every person on the planet. In fact, it was powerful enough, God's grace is power enough, powerful enough to cover the sins of the whole world, if need be. And that part of this, too, was that God would forgive and God would shed grace abroad in a person's heart to anyone who responded to this grace. So if you have ever been to our church before and you come to the communion table... Uh, there's something that I often say at the table, that the table's open to how many people? All people, right? God's grace is available to all. This is a very Wesleyan or Methodist thing to be thinking about because of that split between the Reformed and Armenian churches because we don't believe that God's grace is limited, limited but unlimited, so to speak. And so anyone who responds, in fact, John said, anyone who believes he gave the right to become children of God, Right? that we become a part of God's family when we respond to the grace that is offered to us in Jesus Christ. So, now Wesley talked about God's grace, because we're people of grace, and he talked about there were three forms of it that were expressed through the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is part of the Trinity, but the Holy Spirit would express God's and reveal God's grace to us in three different forms, or three different, three different ways, what we call the three graces. And, uh, does anybody remember ever hearing this before? Because I preached once on it before. So I got one hand. Some of you are going, I, I've already, I don't know what you said. You know why you don't remember? The last time we learned about this was March of 2020. So nobody remembers anything that was preached in March 2020. I don't even remember what was said. I had to go back and look it up. So this is a simple way to look at it. So there's what's called the, what's a big uh, theological term called prevenient grace, better, easier way to think about that is the grace that prepares us to respond to God. So we believe that the Holy Spirit is actually working in our lives through prevenient grace, nudging us, drawing us, prompting us to respond to God. And uh, I, I, I know that some conversations I've had with atheists or agnostics at times feel like, you know, maybe God's preparing you, right? Maybe God, will you listen? Will you respond? 
to God's grace, uh, and sometimes people do, and sometimes, you know, they don't. I've, I've seen people move from being atheist to agnostic just because we've talked about God's grace, and that's a good thing. So, but that's the type of preparation that's moving us along to prepare us to respond to God's grace, and the next part of that grace is the grace that changes us. Uh, the term for this, theological term for this is justifying grace. We're justified, we're forgiven our sins, we're put right with God, and as we respond to that grace, we respond to Christ's salvation, and we begin to change, and we begin, the Holy Spirit begins to change us. Sometimes it happens instantaneously, and sometimes it happens over a period of time. And so this is different for everybody, but I have seen, and I don't understand how it all works sometimes, but I've actually seen people respond to God's grace, uh, receive God's grace in their life, and change instantly. I mean, I think about people, I've seen drug addicts, people who've been addicted to drugs for years, respond to God's grace, respond to salvation, and they stop doing drugs that moment, and they don't go back. I've seen people who are alcoholics. I've seen, uh, I remember one young man I prayed with, uh, he responded to God's grace, salvation, and as I, we prayed together, and after we prayed, you know, and this guy was mad at everybody in the world. He was mad at his parents. He, you know, he was a teenager. We were all mad at our parents when we were teenagers. But he was mad at his parents, and he was smoking and cussing and drinking and all that stuff. And after we prayed, it was like he was a different person right in front of me. And he wasn't mad anymore. He wasn't angry anymore. He wasn't upset anymore. He, he was repenting of all the things, the things that he had done. And then, you know, he stopped, his language changed, his spirit changed, his attitude changed. And I'll never, one of the images I have of him as we're walking out of the building after we had prayed together is that he took the pack of cigarettes out of his, out of his uh, jacket and just slam dunked them into the trash can on the way out. And I thought of that image like that's instantaneous change, right? Now, it doesn't happen for everybody. But I'm always curious, like, how is it that at that moment some of those desires that Paul talked about in Galatians and some of those sins are instantaneously taken away from us. That's a miracle. But then I know not every one of them, I, not all of them are taken away from us, right? Some of them are left. We still have to struggle with them. And some, some fleshly desires we struggle with for the rest of our lives. And that's the last part. That's the grace that goes with us, that grows us and helps us to become more mature in our faith. That's called sanctifying grace. Or really, a simple way to understand is that's the grace that grows us. So, begins to work with all those things and helps us to grow spiritually and become more mature. In, and we do that by God. We still need God's grace. Who still, who here today still needs some grace? Who needs God's grace? I do, right? We all do. We all need that, right? That's a part of what we're needed. It does, it's not just a one-time thing that uh, happens, but it's a, it's a weekly, daily, and that's why we come to the communion table every week because we know we need this grace in our lives. So I want you to just think again. I'm going to go back to the question. What's the state of your soul today? Where are you in response to God's grace today? Are are you in that preparation stage? Is that where your soul is? You've been hearing some things from God. You've been hearing God speaking to you. Maybe the Holy Spirit's been prompting you to respond, but you've kind of like ignored it or brushed it off or and that you're not yet ready to cooperate with the Holy Spirit. Or maybe you are in this place where you're ready to receive uh, the, God, the grace that will change you. You're ready for that. And then maybe you're at a place where you also are growing, still growing. You need grace because you realize there's still some stuff 
in your life that's still going on, you're still struggling with, and you need God's grace to be in your life. And you need to reset today to get back to that. So whatever's going on, I want you to know that God's grace is this. God, John Wesley defined God's grace this way. In Roman, he translated Romans 5.5 5 this way. He says, it's the love of God shed abroad in our hearts, right? That's grace. So think about that, how John Wesley actually was listening to the reading of the book of Romans, not the Bible part, but the preface. Martin Luther wrote a preface to the book of Romans, and as he's listening to the preface of the book, the commentary, he says, I felt my heart strangely warm. He was experiencing the love of God shed abroad in his heart. That's what he was experiencing. It was a part of his experience. And I would say this too, our, our relationship to God is experiential. It's not just all mental. It is experiential. And we're, he was experiencing this love of God. You know, when I got into trouble as a kid, you know, I hate to admit it, but I wasn't a perfect kid, right? Did it, I know you guys think that I was perfect because I'm a pastor, but I, still, I'm not perfect today. Never was. So here's the thing. My dad, I would get in trouble. Usually it was something like, you know, I lied. I took something I wasn't supposed to take. I ate all the ice cream in the fridge, which happened often. Or anybody here have a younger sibling? Any young, anybody here an older sibling? Yeah. Did you ever, like, pick on your younger sibling? And what did they do? What was their reaction when you did something? drama, right? Because they knew if they dramatically responded to whatever you did, mom or dad would come running, and guess who got in trouble? The older, older child, right? So that was me. So I usually, it usually was that I got in trouble for picking on my brother. That was typically the reason. So my dad uh, did not use corporal punishment on me, although I wish he had, because the, the form of punishment he imposed upon me was worse. He would lecture me for like 30 minutes, which is maybe why I'm a preacher today. I've got a lot of lectures. So, and he would talk to me about how whatever I did was wrong and how it wasn't helpful and how it was hurting him and dis how disappointed he was and then how it was hurting my brother and yada, 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 you know, da, da, da. And I would just like, just spank me, please, just anything. Because I'm staring at the ceiling, staring at the walls, you know, just trying to endure the lecture. But you know, my dad did something he gave a benediction at every lecture. He didn't call it a benediction, but I call it his benediction. And at the end of every lecture, his benediction went like this. But I want you to know, I still love you. I, I want you to know that, yeah, I I'm disappointed. Yes, I wish things were different. I wish you could learn. <laughs> but I want you to know I still love you, and I'm not going to stop loving you, and I'm always going to be your dad, and that's never going to change, and I'm going to stay a part of your life whether you like it or not. That's grace. <laughs> that's grace. That's what God says to us in Jesus Christ, that I, I love you. <laughs> I mean, that's why Jesus was sent into the world, because God loved us. God wasn't waiting for us to get our act together, to figure it all out, to change, and then that he would love us because we changed. He loved us, loved us first. And our response, what is our response to that love? Do we want to change as a part of that, right? How are we responding? 
So the other thing that happens when we do respond to God's grace and when God begins to change us is that we also receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The moment we're justified, the moment we respond to God's grace, the Holy Spirit comes into our lives and begins to change us and begins the process of changing us. And this process is called regeneration. Regeneration. Here's a great way of understanding the regeneration process. It says this, regeneration is a grace-infused soul working with the Holy Spirit. I love that idea that, this, that God's grace is infused into our souls. That's the state of our soul. And then the Holy Spirit is coming alongside of us and working with us to regenerate our lives, regenerate us towards spiritual maturity, right? How many of you could use some generation, <laughs> like regeneration, right? right? Some energy, some, some power to regenerate us and help us to grow? Because I don't think I can change or grow without the Holy Spirit, to be honest with you. Uh, I can't do it on my own. Uh, I don't know if you can, if you've been successful at it, but I have not without the help of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit comes in and regenerates us. Now the question, though, I always think about this is like, have I, am I cooperating with the Holy Spirit? You know, on the East Coast, uh, my in-laws just got a big, what's called a nor'easter snowstorm, and they were, they, they were, you know, I don't know, 13 inches of snow, and power lines went down, power went out for like a week. And this happens frequently on the East Coast. And um, so there's no power uh, to their house. They had to go s stay with my brother-in-law. But this happened so frequently on the East Coast when we lived there that our neighbors were buying backup generators for their houses, like permanent generators that sat outside their house. They would hook into their house. And so if their power went out, which happened more than you would think, the power would go out and then they would, the backup generator would just automatically switch on and they'd have power. The fridge ran, the lights ran, and they kept going. And we'd be sitting in the dark next door, you know, waiting for the power to come back on. And I would sit there in the dark and go, maybe we should get a backup generator. But I think about this idea, right? What's a generator do? It, it's, it provides power to your house. The Holy Spirit is a regenerator. So think about this. Do you have the Holy Spirit as your backup generator or your 24-7 power source? Do you just turn to the Holy Spirit when you need it, like when your own power goes out? Or are you putting the back, or is really the Holy Spirit the 24-7 source of power? Because for the Christian, the Holy Spirit is to be the 24-7 generator, the power source for us, not on backup generator, right? And so I think about how often I put Holy, the Holy Spirit on backup. Like, I'll, I'll call you in if I need you on this one, right? We ought to be calling in the Holy Spirit every day inviting the Holy Spirit every day to be at work in us, especially in those difficult situations we find ourselves. So that's, re the Holy Spirit wants to regenerate us. And then this leads us, when we respond and we, be, we be begin this regeneration process, we enter into something we actually learned about last week about our denomination, was we become, we enter into life-giving holiness. That's the grace that changes, that grows us, right? This idea of life-giving holiness. Now, the Wesleyans and the Methodists, or Methodists, define this as this. This is how we define holiness. To be completely filled with love for God and others. So, is that new for you? By the way, let me just check. Is that a new concept for you today? Okay, good, if it's not. But that, I realize that sometimes we think of holiness 
as performance, like perfect performance. We get that idea from the Reformed Church. We get that idea from uh, we have to be perfectly perform and be perfectly holy in our performance towards others or towards God. That's actually coming out of the Reformed stream we talk about, not out of the Arminian stream. The Wesleyan understanding and the Arminian understanding is that we're our maturity and our growth is reflected in how much we love God and how much we love others. That mature people love God and love others, and they're so full of that love and grace of God that they can't help themselves but love others and love God as well. It's, they're so filled with it. And it, doesn't that feel more life-giving, not only to us but to others, right? And so this is what we mean by holiness. This is what we mean by spiritual maturity as, a West, as the Wesleyan church. So, because we tend to get this, this perfectionist performance stuff from the Calvinistic stream of faith that sometimes creeps into our churches, creeps into us as well. To do this, though, Paul says in Galatians, two things have to happen for this growth to happen. He says the first thing that needs to happen is we need to put to death, he said, crucify. That means put it on a cross and nail it and leave it there, like crucify, kill it. And we don't like that imagery. But that's what he says. You've got to take these desires that we have, these fleshly desires. And here's the thing about our flesh, is that our flesh can lead us astray, not only by the desire, but will lead our minds astray, will lead our hearts astray, will lead our bodies astray. And if we are listening to those fleshly desires, they will reorient us, clearly, easily. In fact, we're more prone to that than we think. And so that, without the Holy Spirit, that's how we'll think. That's how we'll be. That's what we'll be. And so Paul says, clearly, take those desires. Every desire, no matter what they are, whatever desire, he's got a whole list there for you to choose from. Whatever that desire is, surrender it to the Holy Spirit. And get rid of it. Completely, he says. And then he says, he gives the other list, right? He says, here's the fruit of the Spirit. And the fruit of the Spirit is quite the opposite of those fleshly desires that he lists. But here's the fruit. There are nine fruits in 522, verse 22 and 23. It says this. But the fruit of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is love, right? Going back to maturity. Joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. You don't have to worry about the law if you're practicing and bearing that fruit, right? Because that's, the, that's what a mature person of faith looks like. That's where God wants to grow us to bear that kind of fruit in our lives. Do you know that a grapevine, uh, a grapevine requires weekly that the roots of the vine be saturated with water t- at least 12 inches deep every week? That, that's not just a light rain. That's like an inch of rain every week has to fall on the roots of that vine for fruit to be born like that, that you see on the screen. For fruit to appear, the roots need to be saturated with water every week. And that is God's grace, right? Our souls need to be saturated with God's grace. Our souls need to be poured, God needs to rain grace down on us every week in amounts that will change and grow us, right? 
And then the Holy Spirit is what draws it up into our lives and into our hearts and into our minds to counteract what else is going on with us. So how much grace do we need? A lot. We need a lot of grace to grow. We need a lot of grace to bear fruit. So the more you and I can embrace and respond to God's grace in our lives, the better fruit-bearing person we will be. Because it's got to get in us. It's got to work in us, right? So we've learned a couple things today. One, not to put the Holy Spirit on backup. And actually, the other thing I didn't mention already, but this idea that sometimes we take our fleshly desires and we put them on life support. We don't really do away with them altogether. We kind of leave them in the background just in case we want to go back to them every once in a while, right? Make ourselves whatever. But here, what we're seeing is that we have to let go of those things. And we have to put the Holy Spirit back in 24-7 into our lives in response to God's grace. And we need God's grace to be just poured out on us every day. That's why we come to this table today. You know, and we, got, we have this opportunity because of Jesus. Jesus makes this possible for us. Jesus was sent into the world to love us, to express God's grace and forgiveness to us so that we could change. You know, there was a little boy, he was nine, and uh, he went to the hospital with his sister and his mom and dad, and the, his sister was seven, and she needed a blood transfusion. And they weren't sure what they were going to do, and she needed a certain type of blood, obviously. And of course, who's usually the best match for you is your sibling. And so um, the brother had the blood, and they could do the transfusion right away, so the parents talked to the doctor, and he was only nine, so you don't normally do blood transfusions with a nine-year-old, and there's some risk involved. And so they talked to the parents, and the parents went and talked to their son and said, look, you know, you don't have to do this, but if you want to help your sister, you could give her some of your blood. And so he thought about it a while, and he pondered it, and he somberly thought, okay, I'll do this. And so he agreed, and the doctor took him in, brought his sister, and they did a blood transfusion for his sister. And at the end of the transfusion, they took the needle out of his arm, and after they took the needle out of his arm, the boy was laying there on the table, and he started crying. He started to see the tears start coming down the side of his cheeks. And the doctor said, are you okay? Is everything okay? And the little boy looked up at the doctor and said, when am I going to die? He thought he was going to die because he gave his blood to his sister. And the doctor assured him, no, you're not going to die. You'll be fine. You're just going to be, you know, tired for a little bit. But then the doctor looked at the little boy and said, so what made you do that then if you thought you were going to die? And he said, well, she's my sister, and I love her. Why wouldn't I do that? That's Jesus. That's grace, right? That's the love of God for us in Jesus Christ, that he would give his life for us because he loves us, because, because we're brothers and sisters in Christ. I've, often, I've done this a few times before, and I, I just want to check in with you guys this morning. This is not manipulative or emotional or anything, but if you are, if the Holy Spirit is speaking to you this morning and, and you have yet to respond to God's grace, but you're sitting here saying, I want to respond to God's grace today. I want to respond to what God is doing in my life today. And I want, I want to, I personally, and we'd like to pray for you this morning. 
So if you're here in this space and you have yet to respond to God's grace, but you want to respond to God's grace today, uh, would you? Ju- I just invite you to stand where you're at if you want to respond today to God's grace at work in your life. I did this at the first service. We had some people take us up on it. But I just want to put that out there and give you an opportunity if there's anybody that we can pray for this morning. Okay. Well, let's pray for all of us. Let's pray. God, we come to you today and we thank you that your grace is available to us. And you are inviting us to embrace that grace, to receive that grace. And we thank you that your Holy Spirit is working within us today and calling us to be your people, to mature in faith that your love would be so filled up in our hearts and our souls and our minds that we would couldn't help ourselves but love you and love others every day. So pour out your Holy Spirit on us today. And we pray as we come to this table of grace that reminds us of Jesus' blood shed for us and given for us, that it is grace, it is forgiveness for sins, it is healing for brokenness, it is hope for the doubting. And so, Lord, would you pour out your Holy Spirit on these gifts of bread and cup that they may truly be for us the body and blood of Jesus Christ so that when we leave here today, we can go be the body of Christ, the grace-filled people of God for you and your kingdom, that we would build your kingdom here by your grace today. So pour out your Holy Spirit on us today in our response to this table. And we pray together today as you've taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.